0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Apple Store Sydney. In celebration of creativity and filmmaking, we are thrilled to be working together with Sydney Film Fest in presenting the Meet the Filmmaker series. To kick us off, I would like to introduce our moderator for this evening, Gary Maddox.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. With so many uh, uh, brilliant Kiwi films over the years, uh, it tells us a lot about this great country and its connection with our country as well. And we've seen, uh, as well as the you know, wonderful blockbusters like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we have so many films that delve into Maori culture. Uh, Whale Rider, Boy, uh, right back to Once Were Warriors, uh, which has a connection with this film here today. So uh, it's, um, it's going to be a great session coming up and I'll now introduce you to our guests, our special guests. Lee Tamahori, of course, directed the 1994 hit Once for Warriors, then headed off around the world to make such films as The Edge, Along Came a Spider, Die Another Day and Triple X State of the Union. He came back to New Zealand to make Mahana, which, as we've seen, is a drama centering on the patriarch of a Maori family and his spirited grandson. Temuera Morrison, of course, immortalised as Jake the Musk from Once for Warriors, plays that stern patriarch, his acclaimed career has included Shortland Street, What Becomes of the Broken Hearted, the sequel to Once for Warriors, The Island of Dr Moreau, Six Days, Seven Nights, Vertical Limit, Green Lantern, and two Star Wars episodes, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. Akuhata O'Keefe, who plays the grandson who comes of age in Mahana, was cast out of high school in Tolago Bay. And while this drama is his debut, he looks like having a very bright acting career. So please welcome them to the stage. Yes, Tim, you would like to uh, start with a greeting.
2: Oh, I just wanted to uh, say a few words in our native Maori tongue. We have a number of our Fano represented from the many wakas from Aotearoa. No te re tū anahau ki te mihi atu ki a ngā whānau, ngā waka, ngā mana re ngā tira. Hurinua e hare mai nei ki te tau toko, kaupapa, e kia nei mahana. Ka nui te aroha, ka nui te mihi ki a koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou. Tēnā Also, like to acknowledge our producer, Robin Scholes and our writer, Mr John Colley, screenplay writer. And also, uh, Kath. Kath was our continuity lady, so again, tēnā kato Kia ora, everybody.
1: Lee, maybe you can tell us about why you wanted to
3: come back to New Zealand to make this film. Actually, uh, I didn't come back to New Zealand to make the film. I was already in New Zealand, but nobody knew I was there because I was lying low. But uh, I had wanted to make another film uh, in New Zealand, uh, but I hadn't found quite quite the right story yet. And Robin, who who produced Once Were Warriors with me, she had, of course, bought the rights to this piece of work. It was called Bully Basher, which is a Turkish word, and we renamed it The Patriarch, and then it got renamed again, as films do. And uh, it was such a great story, I had to do it. Because in many ways, it's, uh, it's a story of my life when I was growing up as a young man at, uh, of his age. And it's the story of the writer, Witi Ihamara's story as well. So the two of us have very uh, fond and lasting memories of that, period in that time as children, so uh, it was great to find a story that wasn't too nostalgic and seen through rose-tinted glasses. Uh, Witty had written a very good story with a great sting in its tail, and that's what I really liked about it. Um, So that was my
1: Okay. Uh, It obviously has a personal connection in that case. Did um, uh, It's a... um, it's a story set in a particular period, uh, which is a significant period in terms of Maori culture,
3: yeah, as I said in the theater, if anybody was listening it's um, it's uh, Maori were a very rural people uh, and with the after the Second World War, there was a rapid move to industrialize and move to the cities, and Maori were encouraged to become part of that movement. In fact, they had no choice. There was no work on the land and they were landless farmers in many ways. Their cultural ties to the land are very deep and long and meaningful uh, because that's where they come from. But there was no, not an income to be made off that land so they became, uh, I guess, migration, uh, migration to the cities. And this film is reflective of a period just as the Great Migration was beginning, and my father was part of that, and my grandfather, all my relatives were very much a part of it, and I was a part of it in the growing up of it as well, and it changed the nature of the culture, um, not too subtly, uh, because when you lose your connect- as a culture, Maori culture is extremely uh, uh, anchored to the land, the sea, the mountain, the sky, it's not anchored to the tall building, the the moving sidewalk, and the and the the the, the airplane, um, and it had to grow up and get come to terms with all that. Maori culture has assimilated extremely well now into the modern world and into the 21st century, but it c- comes with it all the problems, of course, that come with a film like Once Were Warriors, and some some people suggested, not uh, not without reason, I think that this is uh, this is. This story that we've told is the culture before the 60s and the 70s rolled around, especially the 70s and the 80s, when Once Were Warriors was written. Um, so then the, it's quite possible to believe that this generation in this film could become the dispossessed generation of the next, of Once Were Warriors, if you will.
1: It's, uh, we have many films in Australia about the clash between indigenous culture and uh, the white settling culture. This film has got three levels of conflict really, there is that element of Maori versus white culture, but there's also a clash between two different Maori cultures or or tribes or communities, and also within the one family as well.
3: Yeah, well, it's uh, p- very much a part of witty's upbringing. Um, the, the story, it's, it's, it's very similar to, in, no culture is immune from this. The family secrets and the skeletons in the closet of everybody every, lie within every culture, not just the Maori culture or anything. But Witty is very skillful at unlocking this, um, using himself as a, as a muse to then go through a young man, create a young man to actually unravel the story. The, the truth of the story really is that Whitty unraveled the story of his own family in a not too dissimilar fashion of this, f- and that's told in this film about a family secret long kept, held and long kept. Um, but one of the uh, unify, identifying characteristics of a story like this is that um, the period from which this comes from, um, and I know this from my father and my grandfather Um, All these things were very much kept, swept under the rug, kept in the closet. No one was supposed to talk about them and you were supposed to shut up about them and not embarrass your family and bring these things up. Someone got raped, it's too bad, it was their fault. You know, um, somebody got arrested and went to jail, you just don't talk about it. So, those were very much a, a part of the culture and one would like to believe that that's changed and is changing, but I'm not really sure, I just don't know. I know that the very taciturn uh, type of character that Temoera re- represents, very strong, a man of very few words, very tough, a man of action, I mean, you, that he, a, a man becomes known by his actions and rather than by his words, those men are still very much, very prevalent um, in the part of the world that uh, Orgs and I still come from, and in many places in New Zealand, as I'm sure there are here as well. It's the most beautiful looking of films. It just looks stunning. Tell us what sort of look you are going
1: for and how you managed to achieve that.
3: Well, it's a, it's a very thinly disguised Western, as you all can see. It's, um, um, I love the American Western and I always have. And I, um, I was very aware that this period in New Zealand was um, the, in the late 50s and early 1960s when the story is set. Um, that was the, the film of choice for Māori. They loved the Western because a lot of them rode horses and they all saw themselves as these, as these characters. They could wear hats, they could ride horses, they could pretend to be these guys. They just didn't, didn't have firearms and guns. and It was all a myth anyway, but I thought about that when I was putting the film together. The book Bully Basher does not necessarily deal, delve into that. I, it was something I imposed on the film because the kids were going to see Westerns um, and we framed uh, what 310 to Yuma in the, in the movie. It was just my personal love of Westerns that I decided to put into it. But I was very aware that the story lends itself to a large-scale, widescreen screen uh, Western format, which I love very much, and the landscape in Westerns are very much a pivotal part of a, any Western film, so that's why it looks the way it does. Where'd you shoot it? Well, we wanted to shoot it where Witty was born and grew up and where I have a place and where Olga's from. It's a part of New Zealand, uh, it's a very remote part of New Zealand, but we couldn't afford to do it because the costs were too high to transport a crew there. So we shot it all in north of Auckland, and we sort of faked the, uh, the east coast of the North Island, I think somewhat successfully. Some people in the audience who know it very well will know that it's not <laughs> the east coast. But well, I had no choice, and that's... The nature of it. Okay. Was Tim the obvious casting for the patriarch? No, Tim was not the obvious casting for the patriarch, and I'll tell you why. And I've said this before. Um, I actually offered the role to another actor to begin with, and um, no, and there's a reason for that. Um, I Tim and I have a long history of going back to the Once Were Warriors, and he such a, he looms so large over that film as Jake Hickey that. I was uh, I was a bit troubled about <coughs> putting him in the lead role again. Oh, they're doing it again! I didn't want people to feel that we were reviving the same character and just putting him in a different format. And um, mercifully, and quite thankfully, actually, the other actor, who was a very very accomplished actor, pulled out of it. And um, and I then I went back and I said, well, there really there really is only one choice, and I have to. I have to slay my own dragons with this one. And I went to Tim and I said, look, we've got to do this. You're the guy for it because you are perfect for it. But now we've got to make sure we make this film and don't have people think that you are Jake Hickey in a different suit wearing a hat. And I think Tim did a fabulous job on this in laying that ghost to rest and putting the lid on that coffin once and for all. So
1: tell us about your experience, Tim. What was it like when Lee came to you and, and how did you approach the role?
2: Um, again, thank you all for coming, um, again as an actor I'm very blessed that um, I got the phone call to go meet Robin and Lee out in, the middle of the, out in the middle of the King Country where they were auditioning extras and shearers and sheep and dogs and I got there and Lee was playing the guitar, singing a Tui Teka song, one of our famous singers, songwriters from way back. So I immediately grabbed the guitar and started singing the song he was singing. So uh, we hit he it right off. Took the guitar off, off me. <laughs> I took the guitar off him. I said, "Here, this is how you play it." How can there be a song? Which we actually played as as the credits were rolling in the film. But again, it was a wonderful opportunity to um, to uh, really relish in, uh, and and uh, new Lee. Um, was coming, uh, you know, to, to work with Ali again was very much a privilege, and I was blessed that um, he did turn the canoe to my, to my way, and um, I was fortunate also that my mum's from a place in New Zealand called the King Country, a place called the Waitomo, and my grandfather was a dairy milk farmer, so, um, but he was a horseman as well, so I relish every opportunity to ride the horse, and... Um, and again, I uh, really wanted to do a good job. I knew Lee was, uh, was going to be fantastic to work with and craft a, a beautiful uh, story. Again, I was blessed to have Witi very close to the production, Witi Ihimaira for everybody, uh, the writer of the book, uh, famous for the whale Rider as well. So he was very close to the production to draw on. And um, again, I just relished the opportunity. I wanted to be good. So um, I said, Lee, how can I be good for this film? He said, go watch The Magnificent Seven. You'll see Charles Bronson chopping wood. I want you chopping wood like Charles Bronson.
1: There was some excellent wood chopping, so well done. That was, that was good. Uh, the, uh, the grandson role must have been a difficult one to cast because he's on screen so much, and you need him to transform from a boy into, you know, we're seeing him enter manhood. So tell us about the process of casting Org.
3: Well, uh, casting for Augs's role is um, is always fraught with difficulty because the actors of that age range don't really exist. They're not yet even come out of drama schools, so they don't. You have to go and pull them out of school or find them on the streets or wherever you can. And I've done that before on Once Were Warriors, so I was used to it and I was not uh, worried about it. But um, the first thing that came that happened, though, in the 20 years since I'd made Once Were Warriors. There's a lot more talent around now in New Zealand. When we put Once Were Warriors together, we had to pull people out of high schools everywhere and they'd never seen a camera before in their lives. And these days, everyone's seen a camera, everyone's got a phone, everyone's, no one's scared, frightened, intimidated by cameras anymore. In fact, they, you can't get them away from them fast enough. But uh, the casting process is still very difficult because you get a range of people and they're all very good and you have, to be, you have to follow your instincts and say, that's the one, that's the person, that guy there or that woman there is the right person. And uh, Orgs came to me very late in the piece. I'd seen about nine or 10 other young men and, uh, and I was starting to hone in on one or two or the other of them, but I was still a little unsure. And then he walked in the room and just uh, said, pick me, pick me, and you know, the rest is history. He's a natural. Don't tell him that though.
1: Okay. Oaks, oh, tell us about your experience. Were you doing any acting at school?
0: I, I, before this film, I had never done any acting in my life whatsoever. Uh, I kind of just took Lee's word, uh, did what he asked me to do. Uh, and actually, the, day, the week before we started filming, uh, we, I was chopping wood, I was doing everything my character was doing. So, when it came to filming, everything we did while we were filming felt natural. uh It just felt like what I was doing back home. And then I had a lot of help from Tim too, um, for things that would happen on set like like some like we or markers, or just the little things that would really help Lee to direct us. And it's a very different world for me acting um, in a film. Uh, I'm from a little rural town called Tolaga Bay, which there is like only like four shops, <laughs> uh, population of about two no. Nah. And uh, yeah, so coming to this big world of filming kind of gave me a good experience and I liked it, I want to do some more acting.
3: And he put on weight too, because we kept catching him at the craft service table, scoffing down biscuits (laughs) and cookies, so we had to watch his weight outgrowing his costume.
0: Yeah, too much biscuits. How old were you when you were cast? I was 14, um, currently 15 at the moment.
3: (laughs) Now, looking for offers. Going on (laughs) (laughs) 21.
1: Uh, Tim's character is pretty intimidating. How was that for you to act across,
0: you know, opposite him? Um, it was pre- it was kind of alright for me because he helped. He really helped me a lot with it. Uh, I felt relaxed just filming aside beside him, and I didn't really feel intimidated. Well, before we, before I met him, I felt intimidated because. I've seen Once We Warriors, and I thought that Jake the Must was just him all over. And then I met him, I was taller than him. Yeah. And Tim, did you have to, uh,
1: given that so much of the film is about conflict between the two of you, how did you sort of approach that, uh, both on a personal level and also as actors working together?
2: Well there's plenty of material from the book to really dwell dwell into and use your imagination and get stuck in but um, uh, I really started, um, I actually read a lot of the, uh, the uh, just in terms of getting that strength for the character, I started reading a lot about the Māori Battalion who we sent away in the World War II because I imagined uh, this grandfather character could be quite easily one of those uh, gentlemen that went away. Uh, the Anzacs that went away and fought in um, Tunisia and Crete and North Africa. So, uh, and uh, the Maori battalion were quite a formidable force at the end of the day, if, uh, if you look at the research and uh, in their thing. So, very much that uh, warrior energy again. And um, again, working with um, Orcs, he was very natural. And um, the one thing we both have in common is uh, we both come from a kapa, kapa haka. We both do the the haka in, in our, uh, our cultural performances. Our families are very much involved in uh, the groups, Augie himself. So it was something that we could share and uh, just conjure up that energy when we needed to uh, sort of um, amp it up a little bit. And, of course, when uh, you've got Lee directing you, he's uh, no-nonsense, so we sort of have to be on our... bring our number-one game, our A yes, game. Yes, you do. Otherwise, he'll... Uh, I don't know what Sting he'll do, but he answers. looks scary at us anyway, so... Um, but we had a wonderful ensemble too, the, the whole casting, there was all the young kids. They just all seemed very, very natural. And I think that's what it's about too, just keeping everybody natural. And, um, and uh, in this business, it's actually about keeping the acting uh, and all that away and, and trying not to act, just keeping us all natural and, um, and going with the flow. But I was very impressed with the, with the whole cast. They all brought uh, their own beautiful energy and their own Waidua, their spirit to the project. Um, there was about 20 of us in our, uh, in our trailer. You had to step outside to turn around so the guitar would come out. We had a wonderful camaraderie, but when it came to work, we were under a pretty tight schedule, so everybody got really stuck in. And again, it was just a pleasure to uh, bring the forces together. Again with Robin, who we worked with on Warriors. Again with Lee. And again, with John Colley's experience in turning the book into a wonderful screenplay. So uh, with all that material,
1: it's a good base. Tell us, uh, Lee, about getting John to write the script because it's such a story that obviously has its origins very much in Maori culture. It's such a New Zealand story. Why go outside to a
3: Scots-Australian? Well, I think think the... the, um the writing of the screenplay is actually, of which I'm very proud, is uh, is a testament to the power of um, the fact that a writer can come from anywhere—male, female, Russian, Chinese, or Cuban—it doesn't matter. When Robin and I started talking about who was going to do the, who we would get to write the screenplay for this, my brief to Robin, the producer, was: I said, "Look." I understand this culture very well I, and, and Witty has written us the blueprint, the book is written by witty it's his story. I said what we actually need is a very good writer, we don't need to have a writer who is Māori to understand it. We, the, the, the writer of this screenplay does not have to be from this country and uh, Robin had had some dealings with John I think before and she suggested John I met John, I, we f- fell into it straight away, and, I, and, uh, and we got to work on it, and we had a really great time, at least I hope John did, I certainly did, and uh, I know we knocked, uh, knocked it into shape, and John d- did some great work on it, but it's, uh, when I look at it today, I go, you know, this is a perfect example of, of collaboration across the ditch or across the world, really, where it could have been anybody... You just need the skills of a good writer to pull this off and I'm very glad we made that decision and I have no regrets about it and John's a tower of strength for all of us on this show. Great. Tell us about the Harker. From an
1: outsider's perspective, the is always a wonderful thing to watch, very stirring. Uh, we see a particular kind of Harker at the funeral there. It's in some ways challenge it's a, yeah, is it a celebration a, of a, is it a is it a recognition the hu, of them
3: it is the 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 so-called haka in the film at the end is not really a haka at all i guess it could be referred to as such it is a um it's acceptable in the culture to to do that at a funeral the, the maori maori funeral is called a tangi and uh there are a lot of things that happen at a tangi that you can do where you would never dream of doing it at, at a, say, European funeral, it's just not, you would never get away with such things. Basically, that was a flying wedge of outsiders that came in to heap insults upon the departed who, is, who and in front of his family. And uh, on a marae, the, 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 the place where that funeral was held, it's, uh, it's not, violence is not allowed and you're not allowed to settle old scores on this common ground. And um, that doesn't mean to say scores can't be settled outside later on at another time, but uh, you can you can heap praise or insults upon living, the living or the dead, and um, it was uh, it was an idea that was brought up by I can't remember now who who it was John whether it was witty, or was it Nancy Yeah that's right Yeah yeah we had some problems at the end of the script and it was I won't go into the the complications of them but. Nancy, who was playing the grandmother, had very, very strong feelings about how, what her place was to, to be in that part and to do everything by the right kawa and the right protocols of that funeral. And so all of that that happens at the end there came, came about because of a re, reworked and reconstructed version of the events. And uh, we weren't quite sure whether people would even accept what was going on, the idea that you could storm on in a funeral and actually insult the body and all that, but I loved it, I thought it was great. In fact, the more Maori you speak to, the more they say, oh yeah, yeah, you can do that. That doesn't matter, you can do it. In fact, our history is the recent history in the last 20 to 30 years is replete with a lot of body snatching at uh, <laughs> tangis. Every month I'd get up and go there's another body snatching going on and what, what that means is that someone would be laying claim to a, to, a, to a deceased person who's lying in state on a marae and up would come one of these you know, flying phalanxes of people they'd come up and steal the body, put it in a vehicle and drive it back to their place to bury it on their, pla- and their, on their land and cause no end of ructions and so it's not an uncommon thing at all.
1: You mentioned that the uh, film was called The Patriarch at one stage yeah. Uh, it is. There are a lot of st- strong women in this family, in this clan. Yeah. How patriarchal is the sort of Maori culture? And I, I noticed that has also got a, uh, a story called The Matriarch.
3: Well, in many ways, I, uh, I, I renamed it The Patriarch. First of all, the book was called Bully Basha. It's a, a Turkish word. And I couldn't call it that because if you say it in English, it sounds like the word bully and it sounds like the word basha meaning violent. and And I didn't want to have anything, any connotations of violence in the title. So we renamed it The Patriarch because that's what he is. And then um, we were, I'm not sure who to blame for all this. I blame myself, but I'm not sure I should have retitled the film Mahana, but it is what it is. But I was asked to reconsider whether it should be called The Patriarch because I was told that maybe that we might be alienating a large section of the audience, namely female, by, by, by calling a film with such a biblical, old-fashioned, and certainly a heavily freighted word as, as the patriarchal or patriarchy. I didn't really care about it. A film is a film and a book is a book, and it could be called whatever it is, but I was well aware that a the, the large percentage of this audience was going to be women, and I couldn't say for certain that people were going to be turned off by saying, I'm not going to go and see a film called The Patriarch, or I would go and see it. So we retitled it. Um, but getting back to your other part, the part of the question, um, yeah, there's a very, very strong patriarchy in Maori culture, has been there for a long time. Um, women have a very, very, very strong voice in the culture, but in many ways they have to fight for their uh, position on a, in, in the public sphere. The very, I can't get into the protocols and the cultural aspects of it too deeply, but... Um, in some uh, iwi or some tribes, women uh, uh, have a much stronger presence than in others where men dominate still to this day very, very strong. But a lot of the women in those other iwis where men dominate will be the first to say that, they're, that they're, the men only dominate because the women allow them to dominate, you know, because they're really in charge. So it's a very, uh, it's a very loaded uh, subject, but I think as time moves on, you know, it's the 21st century, I think these things are, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of history in, attached to it, eh, Tim? Tim Muera, you know, there's a lot of history attached to all that, but I think those things are breaking down piece by piece as, as things just move on, as time moves on, that's all. One more
1: question from me yeah. before we open it up to the audience there. Now that you two have worked together again, are you talking about another instalment of Jake, another Once for Warriors instalment?
3: No, 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 we'll never do that. I never even wanted there to be a sequel to Once We're Warriors. Someone else made one, but uh, I didn't feel there should have ever been. That was an open and closed story for me. So uh, I'd never go back there.
1: Tim, do you want to say anything about that? Yep. We're done with Once We're
2: Warriors. Uh, Maybe another 20 years will make him He walk. can't.
3: He can't move like he used, used to in <laughs> <and> Montreal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, he, he can't. He can't. His left hook and his jab is, is. It's all over, you know. Maybe,
2: maybe one day I, I can play a, a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be nice.
1: <laughs> okay, uh, we've got uh, some microphones there, so put your hand up if you've got a question. And Actually, we'll... Tim
3: Weiner is much more famous for being Boba Fett in Star Wars than he is for being Jake the Mouse. <laughs> I'd like to congratulate you on your spoken word. My wife is a Kiwi, been here for a long time and speaks perfect English. I've, I'm curious, what ever happened to the Kiwi accent that we get so much of today? What was the question? <laughs> Whatever happened to the Kiwi accent which seems to oh, have we can, permeated we can... your society and... We, we, we can still lapse back into it when we need to. We just um, try and sort of... Uh, I, I, don't, I can't even hear my own accent. People say to me in New Zealand, where are you from? Because I, they think I'm from overseas now. I've kind of lost my New Zealand, my broad New Zealand accent because I've spent a lot of time working in the United States and in Europe and all over the place. But, um, but if I spend enough time in a small rural new zealand community where the accent is very broad i'll slip back into it very easily
1: um tim could you maybe just talk a little bit about transitioning from working in hollywood over to back to working in the new zealand film industry how you found that
2: well it doesn't really matter it's uh i'm just blessed that i um of course once we warriors opened a lot of doors for uh for um for myself, and it was a matter of me uh, making the most of that opportunity. To get into Hollywood, you actually either have to... Uh, it's quite a difficult process. You either get noticed in a film, or you're specially talented, or someone sees you in a nice, small movie. Like in my case, uh, Once We Warriors was was handed around the Hollywood fraternity quite a lot. Not so much in terms of the big screen being shown up there, but within the industry itself, so... Um, so uh, It was, and then my first Hollywood movie was a movie called uh, Barbed Wire with uh, Pamela Anderson. And uh, I remember when I first got my very first day, I had to go down to a place called San Pedro and have a kissing scene with Pamela down on the cliff face. And I couldn't believe the amount of trucks, just all these ginormous trucks, all it took up miles and miles whereas New Zealand we sort of just have the wardrobe truck and the camera little truck and I just the the size and the scale of the Hollywood movies uh, of course the craft service is a lot more expensive as well you can get uh, iced coffee and uh, cappuccinos and chocolate biscuits whereas the New Zealand budgets we sort of just get the super wine the biscuits without the chocolate on uh, but at the end of the day you sort of got there's a camera there's lights some crazy director going action so uh, you know it's uh, very and of course when you work on star wars just the enormity of the sets and uh, the size and the scale of it all but um, I really enjoy working back home I, re- I my best work comes from our own stories from our own earth our own land so uh, and this is very typical of that I felt that with this film Mahana I was able to do probably my best work, I've matured into the acting game now and i finally realised it's not about the acting, it's about trying to hide and being natural and, and things like that. So I've just been blessed that I have been able to work in Hollywood and also relish the opportunity to come home and work on our stories that um, will just make our chest pump, pump up a little bit more and, uh, and again the ensemble of the film, working with Lee again who I knew was going to craft a very uh, special one once again, and since it was 20 years since Once We Were Warriors, so I just uh, um, made the most of the opportunity. But uh, Hollywood's not ringing me anymore, there's some other
1: guy in my costume in Star Wars. I don't know what's going on there. You've worked with so many great actors and actresses, the, the legends of our time, so what was it like working with Tamil Anderson?
2: Actually, I, just before Pamela, uh, just after Pamela Anderson, I got to work in Australia with uh, Marlon Brando on the island of Dr Moreau, so that was fun. But yes, uh, it was very difficult looking at her eyes. <laughs> but yes, yeah, she was fantastic. She was great. Very gritty. She was a big, wonderful uh, woman. Her, and she was big a, eyes. Right? <laughs> she, yeah, it was an action kind of film, so... Uh, so, I, I remember a funny story. Um, I had to fire a machine gun and I had never fired a machine gun before. And uh, the guys asked me, You want this one or the Uzi or this? I said, Ooh, give me the Uzi. That sounds cool, the Uzi. And then I had to hide behind one of the trucks and on action come around and spray the bad guys with this Uzi machine gun. So, action! I'm coming around. Do, 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 do. The machine gun's going all over the place. And then I, Hey, cut, cut. Tim, we need you to come and have a look at the monitor. You're doing something funny with your lips. So he rewinded it for Tim. Give him a look at himself. So I realised I'm going like this. <laughs> I realised I was making the sound effects. And I said, "Oh, sorry, director. Look, I'm, I was getting a bit carried away. I was going making the sound effects." He said, "Okay, let's do it again. Don't worry about the sound effects. We'll put them in later."
1: Well, you better tell us about Marlon Brando. What was it like working with him?
2: Well, besides Brando, we had a wonderful time. We were up with the Australian crew up in uh, Queensland. Uh, the Cairns, the Daintree area. What a wonderful party, and we're wonderful working with all the Australian crew. Of course, our, the first director got fired, and then Brando turned up and just, uh, well, for me, it was just, it would be like being an opera singer getting to sing with Pavarotti.
3: Yeah, but didn't he come back as one of the extras? The, the director. original director did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and I heard, I, I love the story. It's a fabulous yes. story. I forget the director's name. Richard but, Stanley. Yeah, yeah. But, but apparently the, the makeup and wardrobe department conspired to make, it, make him an extra. Yes. And they put all this animal costume on him. And then he came and was watching his own film being made yes. from the sidelines as, yes. the, as one of the extras. Yes. I, I love that story. As an extra. But he uh, was originally s- the
2: director. And then they brought in John Frankenheimer who goes way back with uh, movies as well. But I had a wonderful time with Marlon. Marlon actually, uh, I got to work one day. And his PA come up to me and said, hey, we watched your film last night. Marlon watched it too, once we're warriors. And when I was getting ready for warriors, Lee told, told me to watch Streetcar Named Desire. He said, this will be a reference for you. So I watched Marlon over and over again. So eventually uh, I got invited back to Marlon's bus and he just sort of said, oh, sit down, sit down. Uh, I just want to tell you, I saw your movie last night. Fabulous job, fabulous. You, I thought I was watching a documentary. And... Uh, and just for me, just hearing that uh, praise from Marlon and uh, was just, it was just a moment for me because i had watched Streetcar so many times. I said, oh, gee, Marlon, you don't know how, how uh, touching that is. And, and I, of course, I got invited back to his home in Los Angeles. And then he blew me down. He started, uh, it started raining. And then he started going, oh, kai te heke And I'm going, quack, I'm sure he's talking Maori to me. He was talking, uh, but obviously I really realised he had learned the Tahitian, which is uh, very much uh, part of the similar language and everything, so uh, I had a wonderful time with Marlon, wonderful time with the crew.
3: Alright, any other questions? <laughs> Thank you very much for the movie. I, I had tears coming down my face. Um, in New Zealand, has things progressed where Once Were Warriors was very brutal, whereas I felt that the film Mahana was very sentimental. I found myself as a New Zealander, I was brought up there, just getting involved in the story, and I had tears. Has New Zealand politics actually changed? Sadly, no. Um, the uh, rates of incarceration and criminal activity and death of children under, under five is still as bad as it ever was. Uh, we'd like to think that it, we're changing it, but nobody still knows how to do it. There's, it's, uh, it's one of those tragedies of our existence it's not just Māori it's Polynesian Māori it's Pākehā as well but there's a seemingly endless capacity for young poorly educated drug-taking alcoholic young men and women to kill their children and uh, and to it just won't go away as a problem I'd love to say it was different but we haven't seemed to have grown up at all
4: uh, it 's sort of a question. I grew up in New Zealand, not far from where um, the film was was made i 'm from Napier Hawkes Bay, and um, my my tragedy as I saw it as I grew was that I never knew any Maoris in where I was. They were somewhere else, and we would only see Maori people in Rotorua, um, children diving for pennies, etc and I always had that sense of a people completely kept away and almost like a curiosity and I really wanted to know the Māori culture and now I'm so thrilled, this is a statement, so thrilled to hear that Māori is being taught in schools, That, that made me tremendously happy. But the question I wanted to ask was, can anyone pinpoint the moment when the, the, the Māori became separated from their rural life and were literally forced into the cities where I saw people coming out early in the morning from the night shift at the hospitals and I felt so ashamed. And I thought, was there a moment there when the pride came back? Was it with the um, ratification of the treaty of Waitangi? Because that was shameful that it was not ratified until Lange.
3: Uh, in truth, uh, what happened was um, there was no future but to move forward and move forward into the, what New Zealand was becoming and to stop being a sort of small rural, it's still a small rural agrarian country, but Māori's um, part in it was to be um, those in, especially in the 1960s, 1950s, but all through the 1960s and the 1970s, into the very hard physical laboured um, Part of the industrialization of New Zealand, freezing works, places like that, manual labor building roads, doing a lot of heavy physical stuff, um, but they were not penetrating in any decent numbers into the academic spheres, and that didn 't come around until until the late 1960s and early '70s The biggest change and, I, and this is anecdotal on my part, but I was there to observe it really. The biggest change that happened in certainly in my observation is that um, The black consciousness movement that came out of America in the 1960s after the civil rights movement had a profound effect on Māori, a massive effect. And uh, once the black consciousness took over in the late 1960s, along with emerging feminism and other great movements that came out of the United States, Māori took it up, and especially young Māori at university took it up. There were lots and lots of them around my age at that time, and they became uh, very uh, vocal, very active. And many of them realized at the time that the only way to protect the culture was to uh, pr- protect the language. The language had, the language is everything, because Māori is an oral culture. It does not have a written uh, component to it. It does now, but it never used to. And, um, and many of them worked tirelessly to instill that back. And so the 1970s, was full of uh, of, a, of a resurrection, if you will, uh, coming in off the back of the the black consciousness movements of the United States and other parts of the world and it sort of picked up pace in the 80s and nineties um, and it 's a good thing a very a very good thing now it's uh, now it 's unstoppable um, and young maori can and Orgs is a testament to that you know he is uh, of that generation that can avail themselves of two languages, should they wish, be fluent in both, learn this, learn that, do anything they like, and it's a, it's a different landscape, for sure. I won't say it's a rosy future, but it's a, a much better landscape than it was.
0: Hi, um, my question's for Ox. Um, uh, although you come from a very different uh, time in history with your character, um, tell us about how you um, were able to connect with or relate to Simeone, and what was it like for you to look back and watch yourself up on the big screen? Uh, before we started filming, I went up to my my grandfather, and because he would have been Simeon's age at that time, and so uh, at our farmhouse, he kind of we were talking about what they what you would do back then, uh, the things that he did. And now that I think of it, the things that they do that they did then are very different to the things that we do now uh you If I was brought up in those days, right now, I would have been chopping wood for the family, uh going hunting to provide food for the family uh, But what I do at home now, I just sit on my phone and <laughs> do nothing. Just go to school, come home, and eat. But uh, after watching the film for the first, oh, when I first watched the film, uh, that that was when I started to understand what he was trying to say. Because uh, at the time we were, when we were talking, I was things were getting to me, and I didn't know what he was meaning. And then I watched the film, and then then I was starting to notice things that he was starting, that he was saying to me. But, uh, yeah, I'm glad I went up to him for his advice and, uh, yeah, he kind of reminds me of Simeon too, as well as myself. You've had this
1: masterclass of wood chopping from Tim there, but you
0: haven't continued on? Oh, well, I I, I I knew how to chop wood already, but Lee said, "Orcs, you have to grab a knotted wood. And I was... Trying to question, I was questioning that because I knew it, I knew that the X wouldn't cut through, but they had to make my character look a bit look like he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and um, but for me, I would have thought that back in those days, you would have my character would have already known how to chop wood, um, being brought up chopping wood. But yeah.
3: You're, you're right, actually. <laughs>
1: was, uh, there'd be an app for it now.
3: I blame John Colley for that one. John, <laughs> we let that one slip past us.
1: OK, other questions?
4: Thank you. And I really enjoyed the mixture of English and Māori. I thought it was a lovely balance. I could have had a little bit more. I'm wondering whether you think you're going to get your money back on the movie.
3: I'd love to think so, but I, I have no idea, it's such, a, uh, such an unknown business. Um, I just don't know. It's, uh, it's tricky, it's not a film for everybody. Um, it's, um, we've released it in New Zealand and it's done moderately well, but not very well. I think I knew even when we were making it, it's going to only appeal to a certain demographic, probably an older audience. Um, rather than a younger audience, because it's a bit nostalgic, it's from a different period in time. The story doesn't seem to have on the surface any dynamics for younger people, or anyone under 25. Um, so uh, it tends to uh, lend itself to an older age group, and I'm not sure how that's gonna, maybe it'll appeal to, I just don't know. As it travels the world, you probably do well at film festivals, but maybe that's it. I'd, I'd hope so. I want. I'm invested in it. I want to get some money back. Such is life, though, with film. Who cares? Just, you've got to get them made. Is it getting a cinema release in Australia? Do you know? Uh, It's getting released in Australia next week. Uh, Who knows? Very soon. This is is its premiere, and then it gets released sometime soon, I guess.
4: I just want to
2: say um, I love the strength of the women in Mm. it, but... It was the relationship of the grandson with his grandmother
4: that I think was brought um, a strength and a gentleness and perhaps a healing mm. to the film. So I just want to say thank you to you for
3: that. Oh, that's that's a, a very good comment. I, ha- I had an interesting comment from a friend of mine who saw it... Um, and uh he said I saw your film and I said what do you think of it and he goes he said it was marvelous he said it's really good I, I he said um he said it's very rare to see a film that has the act of forgiveness at the center of it and uh he said that's a very uplifting feeling and you don't see that in many films and I'd never thought about that it was quite a un- very um uh, unusual compliment to pay for a film because it's not one that even been on my radar, but it does have that in spades. And uh, I think that's something that it probably resonates with everyone without even understanding it. By the end of the film, you because the film really is, it seems to be about a battle between young and old, but really it's a story of a, of a, of a deeply embedded secret of a beautiful woman who's lost, who's gave up everything in life for uh, to live a life that she didn't want and uh, and but only that story is only brought out uh, by her young male grandson and it's a, it's an extraordinary tale and uh, I think that scene at the funeral at the end at the tangi is uh, probably my favorite scene in the film because of its sheer f- f- power, the f- resonance and the power of the grandmother who in the story is very She's just seeded through the story in small amounts, but her time is to come, and her time is to come is at the end of the film, when the story is all about her.
4: I have a
0: question. Um, This is to both Lee Tem and Orgs, especially Orgs, as you're an emerging artist. Do you guys feel pressure on having to tell Maori and New Zealand stories, or is it more about finding a good story to tell?
3: Well, speaking for me, I, I, uh, when I work in the rest of the world, I, I certainly don't do stories about Māori, obviously, but when I'm in New Zealand, uh, those are the best stories. And the only reason I like them is because they, there's so many great stories to be told about Māori, and I keep being drawn back to them. Um, that's a personal thing for me. It's got nothing to do with the fact that I am Māori or anything. It really is not. It's just that I find the storytelling so compelling. The European side of our culture is very young, younger than yours in Australia even. Um, It's really a a 150-year-old European history, and it's a cobbled-together, borrowed British United Kingdom history anyway, and sort of in many ways, I've grown up in two cultures myself. Uh, My mother's Pākehā European, and my father is Māori, and I've been right at the forefront of both those cultures. I understand them both very well, and... And I can see the dilemma and the dichotomy involved in, in U- European New Zealanders. We still really don't know who we are. We sort of think we do, but we're not quite sure because the dominant culture really has always been Maori. They were there and they were there in big numbers and they dominate the landscape. And for me, I think that's where the storytelling is really at its strongest in the 19th century for me and uh, back in history. Um, Once Were Warriors is probably the only, not the only modern story I'll tell, but um, I'm more intrigued with stories from the past about Māori than I am with the present ones. But that's up for other filmmakers to do that. Um, I don't know what others might think about
0: that. I think there are a lot of uh, other stories. I think there are a lot of stories in New Zealand to be told, Uh, just like what Lee said, a lot from the past. But... um, I think this is a this was a good story to tell and it did pretty well.
2: It's just great to bring out another story. We've had the Warriors, the Whale Rider, uh Dark Horse, uh so again I must congratulate Robin and uh we've uh we she has certainly had her battles in terms of keeping all the financiers happy and getting every all the collaborators together so so you never gave up, Robin, so uh, again, we put one out there, and we're very proud, and again, I thank you all very much for coming today, and uh, especially to the talk, and hopefully with, by the look of the, uh, the auditorium today, it was a very full house for us, a very warm house, and they laughed in places I didn't think they were that funny, uh, but uh, I'm going, gee, I didn't realise they were so funny. What do you mean she it wasn't supposed love, to be. she's 60 years old? But, uh, yeah, with the reaction we've had today, maybe we can build impetus and um, and get a bit of a roll on and spread the
1: word. But, uh, um, okay. yeah. We have Gary. time for one more question, if anybody's got one. Oh, just down there. Thank you. Uh, this is a little bit of um, Aussie levity
4: here. Did anybody close the gate?
3: <laughs> yes, well spotted. Thank you. <laughs> I know, I know. I knew it, even as we were shooting it, someone said, hey, they've left the gate open. I said, I haven't got time to shut it, just let's move on, let's go. And I regret every minute of it. Because I, I know every time I look at that scene, I see the open gate, and I go, oh, my God, yeah. <laughs> Thank
1: you. Yeah, well spotted. The scene of the broken leg. Has medical treatment improved in New Zealand since, since then? <laughs> let's hope so. Look, the festival's such a rich experience when we not only get a, a beautiful film, but we hear from the filmmakers about the stories behind it, the kind of love and the craft that goes into it. So it's been great today to have Lee and Tam and Orgs here with us. So please join me in thanking them and wishing them the best.
2: We should get uh, Orgs to play his Maori flute here, just to finish off. Would you like to play something, Orgs? He's got a Maori flute here. This will be like we normally sing a song after a speech, so here's our song here.